we would like to acknowledge and respect the traditional owners, including the Wondery Woiwurrung people as original custodians of this land, along with their customs and traditions and their special relationship with the land. It's Sunday the 14th of November and welcome to The Wind Down, a recap of the week's news produced by Swinburne University's The Standard. I'm your host, Angus Delaney. Among today's headlines, Former Prime Minister Paul Keating says Taiwan isn't of interest to Australia. Also coming up, we speak with Anna Jaffin, the CEO of the Public Interest Journalism Initiative about emerging trends in Australian media and journalism. So let's look at the book industry or, or the film and television industries. They've all been disrupted in dramatic ways by um, the introduction of digital technologies. And now for the week's headlines. Taiwan is not a vital Australian interest, according to former Prime Minister Paul Keating. Last Wednesday, the former PM made an appearance at the National Press Club and talked about the global concern on China's aggression towards Taiwan. As well as not calling it an Australian interest, Mr Keating also added that we have no alliance with Taipei and urged for no military engagement. In response, a spokesperson for Taiwan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Joanne Wu, told The Guardian that Taiwan and Australia were important partners and China's aggression had far-reaching implications. China has long claimed Taiwan as one of its own provinces and there is a growing global concern of potential plans for Taiwan to be retaken. As newsrooms around the world feel more pressure to transition to digital and social media platforms, Aditi speaks with Anna Jaffin from the Public Interest Journalism Initiative about recent trends in media and what might happen going forwards. Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for joining us on The Wind Down today. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself uh, and what you do. So I'm Chief Executive of the Public Interest Journalism Initiative, which is a specialised think tank focused on the sustainability of public interest journalism in Australia. We undertake original research and public policy design in an effort to find sustainable ways for news of all persuasions to exist. You've done a lot of research uh, with the news kind of environment in Australia right now, um, especially with newsrooms. How has the pandemic affected the newsroom in Australia? So one of the key areas of interest for us is assessing media diversity and plurality. And so one of the core pieces of research we've undertaken is our Australian newsroom mapping project and that tracks changes positive and negative in news production and availability across Australia. Um, our data starts from the 1st of January 2019 and we've captured over 350 odd changes during that time since then. But what we've seen is the majority of changes have occurred since the COVID um, impact uh, in, at the end of March last year. And have those been downsizing? Yeah, so one of, the key, one of the key trends we've seen is it's been disproportionately skewed towards regional Australia compared to metro Australia. So in very rough terms, because the changes are tracking... Um, monthly, but in very broad terms, roughly two-thirds skewed towards regional Australia in terms of volume of change, 
And then equally in terms of um, positive green shoots um, versus contractions, be that changes away, for example, from a print production to a digital-only publication right through to newsroom closures. Again, roughly two-thirds of that is skewed towards um, uh, contractions, what we would term contractions in news production or availability. And could you explain to our audience what the difference is between green shoots and um, contraction? So we would um, categorise any expansion in news production as a green shoot. So that could be um, the addition of a newsroom, addition of a new masthead, opening up in a new region through, and a contraction could be the shutdown of a newsroom or um, the temporary suspension of a print production. So we saw a lot of that, particularly through the first six months of COVID last year, where a lot of print publications and newspapers were suspended and replaced, operated purely as, as digital masters. Now, some of those have resumed print publication since the pandemic environment has stabilised, but many have remained as digital-only publications. That latter outcome is broadly reflective of a general trend towards digital publication that we've seen across the industry over the last 10 years, but the pandemic has certainly accelerated that flight to digital. Right. And how has the move to digital affected um, the quality of news in especially regional areas which rely more on local news? So we've got new research that we'll be doing next year that's actually um, assessing the quality of news in terms of business journalism terms. So looking at questions of local court reporting, local government reporting or um, local news. Outside of that, what we have observed so far is an increase in terms of syndicated content. So where a masthead is part of a news group, we're starting to see an increase in syndicated content, but that is not universal across all news groups, etc. Um, so it's hard to really give an accurate assessment at this time. There certainly needs to be a lot more data gathered in that area. Do you think that print journalism is kind of dying or do you think there's hope for it? And is that a bad thing? We've seen other indus other industries um, disrupted by technology. So let's look at the book industry or, or the film and television industries. They've all been disrupted in dramatic ways by um, the introduction of digital technologies. Without a doubt, digital disruption is here to stay um, for the news industry. That being said, we have seen green shoots at a hyper-local level where a print newspaper may have closed down in the local area and we have seen green shoots appearing, usually a community-led or solo operation um, led by a former journalist who feels keenly around their local community and looks to bring back a print publication. Without a doubt, the economies of scale are one of the biggest tests and actually building a sustainable business model is key to ensuring you can still do print production. The cost of public interest journalism 
is high because your major cost is your people cost in terms of your journalists. Um, and then if you add print costs as well as the physical distribution of print, um, they are much higher than having a straight digital-based product. That being said, there are also really key parts of the community that rely heavily on print productions. We know that those socially disadvantaged who don't have easy access to digital technologies or in remote communities where digital access and connectivity is an issue, and equally um, older generations who are more uh, welded to reading hard copy news um, certainly look for that service. So there is a market for it. Whether we move entirely to digital within the next 20 to 25 years remains to be tested. I mean, interestingly, the book industry has actually stabilised in more recent decades um, where people have actually put a value on a hard copy book versus just uh, reading online. How do young people, I guess, in this new environment with a lot of, you know, local leaders and everything closing down, how do they go about getting community news? And do you think they're interested in it at all? So there's a couple of definitions of community news. So for our purposes, we're talking about public interest journalism. So we see the professional craft of a journalist and the professional standards and ethics um, that they bring to that as an essential assessment of public interest journalism. There are, of course, more informal community networks um, for the distribution of information um, and local information, which can be different. They're obviously not privy to editorial practices nor the scrutiny of external complaints authorities that professional media is. So in terms of young people and access, we've certainly seen a rise in the social media platforms as substitute for community news. But what we're also starting to see is hyper-local news producers obviously using those platforms to deliver their news. With the rise of misinformation and disinformation, we have seen an uptake in the last 18 months of news consumption across all demographics in terms of going back to trusted news providers. Um, and certainly fact-checking services are increasingly the norm and we've seen that come through on the social media platforms and indeed some of the social media platforms um, such as Facebook are entering into partnerships on fact-checking in an effort to try and mitigate some of the misinformation, disinformation that can take flight on those platforms. But it is tricky and equally because Traditional legacy news media isn't necessarily the normal go-to for younger generations. It's not a part of their familiar practice. They've grown up as digital natives and accustomed to getting all their information online, not necessarily going to a masthead such as the Sydney Morning Herald or the ABC as the original source. So it's how the news industry actually pivots into those digital platforms and creates meaningful fact-checking services, et cetera, that can be 
um, integrated inside the other ways that consumers uh, access their news on a daily basis. But we did also see with Facebook shutdown in February this year, a demonstration, I think, for all of us on how much we actually rely on daily news through the social media platforms and actually understanding that if you remove news media, the gaps that it would leave in terms of your information dissemination. So that was a really interesting case study, I think, that gave everyone pause to actually better understand how news does feed into our consumption of, of social media, but also general information gathering on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, that was definitely a very interesting time uh, when all of the news disappeared on Facebook all of a sudden. Did it make a big impact for you over those few days? I don't actually use Facebook uh, myself. So, yeah, um, I actually... I mean, being a journalism student, obviously I do rely on mastheads quite a bit to get my news. Uh, but I also, Twitter is kind of my main platform for finding breaking news out. And they don't, they haven't had any issues. I think they've just doubled down on their news partnerships, if anything. Um, so for me... Well, I think Twitter announced Facebook's closure, didn't they? Yeah, they did. They, they almost reveled in it. They found it very amusing. Um, so I think... Uh, it, it would definitely, if, if something similar would have happened to Twitter, it would make a huge difference because I do rely on it quite a bit, especially to get um, updates on things that might be ongoing at the time. But yeah, I don't personally use Facebook, so it didn't affect me quite as much. Yeah, oh, me for a minor, I, I rarely use it, but it was interesting. I mean, Twitter seems to be the dominant platform used by news journalists in terms of sourcing information and staying across breaking news. But it is interesting to see how each uh, social media platform develops in terms of what industries it best services. And now back to our headlines. Over 130 people have died after a fuel tanker collided with a lorry in Freetown the capital of the West African nation, Sierra Leone. Fuel leaked from the tanker before it caught fire and exploded, as did other nearby vehicles, which has overwhelmed the nation's hospitals. Sierra Leone's Vice President, Mohamed Julder Jallo, called it a national disaster after visiting the scene. More than 70 of the bodies have been burnt so badly they couldn't be identified, leaving families to assume their loved ones were among those lost. The World Health Organization pledged over six and a half tons of emergency medical supplies to support the health services in managing the situation. Four large car producers and over 20 countries have signed an agreement to end the production of fossil fuel powered cars by 2035 or 2040. This was unveiled at the Glasgow Climate Summit on Wednesday the 10th of November. Countries that committed to the pledge include New Zealand, the UK, the Netherlands and Canada and was agreed to by leading car manufacturers Volvo, Ford, Mercedes and Mercedes-Benz. Volkswagen, Toyota, Renault, Nissan and Hyundai Kia are among large car manufacturers that didn't sign the declaration and China and the US are notable absences from the country's signatories. The New South Wales government has signed the agreement and Treasurer and Minister for Energy and Environment, Matt Keane, says that they are well on their way to producing solely electric vehicles. 
we're already well on target to hit those ambitious targets set by the COP. Uh, in fact, we'll have 50% of all new cars sold in New South Wales being electric by 2030. So uh, we're not only uh, looking to the future, we're embracing it and grabbing all the opportunities that are coming with it. This was supported by $105 million commitment to assist in the uptake of electric cars, bringing the total spending on EVs by the New South Wales government to nearly $600 million. South Korean capital Seoul announced on November 4th they had plans to be the first major city to join the metaverse. The metaverse is being hailed by Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg as an immersive internet that relies on virtual reality. The 10 million won investment is being headed by the mayor of Seoul, Oso Hoon. It is part of his 10 year plan for the capital, which aims to improve social mobility among citizens and raise the city's global competitiveness. It is also a part of South Korea's Digital New Deal to help combat the crisis of COVID-19. It aims to improve healthcare, central infrastructure and the economy by embracing digital and artificial intelligence tools. Here's sport with Natalie Anderson. First in sport, in Aussie rules, a player from Carlton's AFLW team who wishes to remain anonymous recently turned in a positive COVID-19 test. This had all occurred on the exact same day when Hawthorne had a confirmed positive case among their players. Later on, the club did send out a statement. Carlton acknowledged that the player was fully vaccinated and took a rapid antigen test at the club's training facility, which returned a positive result. This particular person is going to self-isolate for seven days, and the club is continuing to provide support to those individuals who wish to remain unnamed. And in NBA news, basketball star Nikola Jokic has been suspended over an ugly altercation. Nikola Jokic has been suspended for one game. This is including his salary and the league did announce this news on Wednesday. It all kicked off when Morris came from an unsighted position to smack Jokic across the face after rapidly charging his ribs throughout the duration of the fourth quarter. Center on Twitter have more information about this recent controversy. Uh, Morris. Banging Jokic first. They'll take a look at this. Extenuating circumstances, perhaps. But Jokic returning the favor. Well, of course, you know that the Nuggets have history. The league handed down its punishments over the incident 24 hours later. And that's all we have for this week in the Sports Newsroom. Thanks, Natalie. Now back to our headlines. China and the United States have unveiled an unexpected climate pact at COP26 in Glasgow after declaring climate change an existential crisis. China and the US, the world's two biggest greenhouse gas emitters, have been negotiating the agreement in secret for months before settling on a decision in Glasgow. This announcement comes just a week after Biden expressed his disappointment that Chinese President Xi Jinping had not attended the climate summit. I think it's been a big mistake, quite frankly, for China, with respect to China, not showing up. The rest of the world is going to look to China and say, what value added are they, are they providing? The pact between the two powerhouse countries states that they will work together to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, a temperature that scientists say will help humanity avoid the worst effects of global warming. 
One of Australia's largest pathology companies, Australian Clinical Labs, have kept $12 million in JobKeeper payments despite experiencing enormous profits. The company's revenue grew by 29% last financial year as they provide COVID-19 tests and recorded a profit of over $100 million. Many companies have pocketed JobKeeper funds among profits, but Australian Clinical Labs stands out as they experienced a $100 million increase in revenue from their pre-pandemic figures. A Labor Party spokesperson says this was an example of company taking advantage of public payments. A spokesperson for Australian Clinical Labs describes JobKeeper as a lifesaver and a job saver. Today's episode of The Wind Down was written by Titi Kuti, Tim Wilson and Angus Delaney. Our editor was Ebony Weston and it was produced by Angus Delaney. Our artwork is by Emily Lee. You can find us on Instagram at Swinburne Journalism or at The Wind Down Swinburne, on Twitter at Swin Journalism or on our website, theswinstandard.net.